My name's Scott Redmond. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, guys. I uh, want to thank Bob for asking me to uh, come and hang out with you guys for the weekend. And uh, what an extraordinary place. I mean, what a... Join Alcoholics Anonymous and see the world, huh? Un unbelievable. I mean, who would have sunk it? It's it, it's just remarkable. I want to thank you guys uh, for participating in this event. I feel honored to just be part of it. And uh, I'm, as Bob said, I'm real fortunate. I have a lot of friends up here. Because I want to thank a gentleman who came and, and uh, picked me up at the airport. It's always interesting to be picked up uh, by a... Uh, uh, that's just for the taping, right? Pardon? That's just for the tape. I'll, I'll talk louder. Okay. Um, it's always interesting to be picked up by drunks at an airport. Uh, a friend of mine was going to an AA function and showed up at the airport, and the guy picking her up had his own name on a sign. <laughs> uh, we are a baffled lot. Um, I, uh, I'm really uh, humbled uh, to be asked to come and participate in, a, in an event like this. And, uh, and what I'd like to do is uh, really technically really gifted. Is um, I'd like to qualify tonight to let you know that I'm an alcoholic, and uh, and then we're going to have uh, three sessions uh, for the remainder of the weekend, and hopefully we can have a discussion of the 12 steps, maybe in chunks of three or four uh, during the course of the weekend. And uh, I don't talk because I know more. I talk because maybe I talk more. I don't know why uh, I'm, I've been asked to talk, but I'm nothing special. If you're new here, I want to tell you I'm not uh, paid to talk. Uh, I. Uh, um, I'm just a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a drunk. Uh, I don't. I know a lot, and, and 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 I don't know any more than most of the other guys I know in AA. When I came in and I heard guys say I don't know anything, I say to myself, I won't ask him any questions. Uh, that'll be one of the guys I I don't ask any questions because he doesn't know anything. So I'll go to some of the guys who actually do know some of the stuff. And 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 uh, in our big book, it talks about it imparts a tremendous amount of information about uh, if you're an alcoholic, if you place yourself beyond human help. Uh, how to really get closer to this power that seems to interrupt this horrifying cycle of spree and remorse. Um, if you're new here, I'd like to welcome you to AA. If you've heard my story before, there's just not a goddamn thing I can do about it. You know, I, uh, you know, don't move your lips, don't get ahead of me. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to come up with something completely different. You know, I was uh, when I came when I got sober, I was a small Polynesian woman. Uh, <laughs> But I can't do it. Uh, I can't do it. I only got the one story and uh, uh, something uh, that because it was when I came here, my story was the thing that made me uh, sick and uh, everything about my life made me sick. Uh, near the end for me, at night when I put my arm around my wife in bed, I'd hear her under her breath say in a whisper, you disgust me. And I didn't argue it because I disgusted me. I knew it was the truth. And it wasn't a finger wagon. It was just the state of the art. And if you guys, when you did tell me, but I couldn't hear it, anything, that my story, if you, if I had some notion that my story, that my life would depend on my story, that once my dark past was in God's hands, I was going to actually be able to help other men avert death and misery. If you had told me that what I had done was going to wind up being my biggest asset, I probably would have killed myself, you know. And I'm not a, pretty much, I'm not a suicide person. I'm a homicide person. I, uh, I vastly prefer your death to mine. Uh, uh, I always have, uh, and I'm not knocking those suicide people, you know, uh, it's, uh, kind of the flip side of the same coin. I've always just gone, you know, if I kill all of you, there'll be no reason to commit suicide. That's, that's just, you know, where I've always gone in my head. If you're new here and you're bored, I'd like to tell you my favorite story about being bored in Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it, uh, it happened, uh, to a guy named Jeff D., this guy in my old home group, and he was, uh, new, he was a couple of weeks sober, and he was at a meeting with his sponsor and he was shifting around in his seat, and his sponsor said, uh, 
what's the matter? And Jeff said, I'm bored. And his sponsor said, well, you know why you're bored. And Jeff said, no. And his sponsor said, you're bored because you're boring. That's why you're bored. And Jeff, it was like an acid moment for him. You know, he went, wow, wow. Blew him away. So what a cool thing to say to a newcomer. You know, it blew his mind, man. And he could hardly wait till the newcomer told him that they were bored. <laughs> Thirteen years later, no newcomer has told him that they're bored. He's 13 years sober. He's at a meeting with a young lady who's new. She's shifting around in her seat, and he says, uh, what's the matter? She says, I'm bored. He says, well, you know why you're bored. She said, yeah, because I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, it can get cold in old AA. <laughs> sure. So if you're new and you're bored, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If uh, you're not an alcoholic, I'd like to welcome you to AA. If you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to AA. If you're a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to AA. Uh, and suggest that you stick around long enough to catch alcoholism. Just catch alcoholism. You can be anything you want, anything you want. You can be the Bigfoot of dope addicts. You can be a dope behemoth, a dope juggernaut. Just in addition to whatever you have, please contract alcoholism. It would be our pleasure to give it to you. Uh, Dr. Paul was fond of saying that the infection takes place at the meetings, and it usually enters through the ear. At the meetings, the infection enters through the ear and spreads throughout your entire body and infects everybody around you and stuff. And... Uh, uh, I did not have alcoholism when it came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new here, they're going to lie to you and tell you you can't catch it, and they're lying. I caught alcoholism from you. I caught it at these meetings. I have a rotten case of it today. And uh, if you don't catch alcoholism, you die from it. And if you catch it, you get better. Pretty weird. Pretty weird. I don't know any other disease that can lay claim to that fact. If you catch it, you get better. If you don't catch it, you die from it. Um, and again, I did not have alcoholism when I got here. First, number one, uh, I'm Jewish, and Jews don't drink. <laughs> because it might dull the pain, you know, and uh, you don't want it to dull the pain. Uh, you want to be uh, completely uh, aware and present for any agony opportunity that presents itself. <laughs> and when I first came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I heard a guy uh, qualify that he was an ex-Catholic, which meant that he did not believe in God and was convinced that God was going to come kill his ass for feeling that way. And uh, I said, I'm with him. <laughs> I mean, I got that completely. That Catholic guy helped me stick around Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time as much as anybody did. I was introduced to an Old Testament God when I was a kid, and I would not be caught in a dark alley with this God. This guy got your ass no matter what, man. You couldn't hide from him. He got you. He turned your wife to salt, killed your goat, put a finger in your eye, and he got you. And... um. You had to speak a foreign language to talk to him, and uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And uh, in addition uh, to all that, I, I was in Hebrew school when I was a child, and my Hebrew name was Shlomo. And I wanted to get a Shlomoectomy immediately. I wanted out of Shlomo as quickly as I could possibly get out of Shlomo. And I'm, 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 you know, I don't think there's any slomos in the crowd that I'm going to be offending tonight when I when I say this. But I just, I wanted, I wanted James Dean. I didn't want Shlomo. And and the reason why I bring this up is, if you knew, how does a Jewish kid from the Bronx <clears throat> wind up at a, a Christian retreat in Oregon talking about alcoholism? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I do know one thing. I do know why <clears throat> uh, alcoholics Anonymous would work for for a Jewish kid from the Bronx and for uh, uh, the ex-Catholic who I described, and for everybody in this room. 
the reason why it works is because we are not a religious organization. We are a spiritual organization. And that's why it can and does work for that wide a spectrum of people. In addition to being Jewish, I was not alcoholic. I, uh, uh, I'd been in psychotherapy for 18 years by the time I got to AA. Uh, I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. And um, I uh, uh, was an alcoholic. I just had some very complicated, very dark problems. And uh, on top of being Jewish and being in psychotherapy for 18 years, I was not alcoholic. I was a dark, complicated artist with some very complicated artistic problems, but I was not alcoholic. And uh, I grew up in the Bronx uh, and was raised in a, a completely insane household to a completely crazy family. My wife never believed me about my family until she met him. And uh, my mom threw an engagement party for us. And uh, my aunt came and uh, wore her wig backwards, and it had a bun on it. <laughs> so the bun was out in front. And... Uh, I had understated the problem. My wife walked around this room as if she had been hit by a wrecking ball. I mean, I had not exaggerated it. I, it, it, uh, <laughs> I didn't remember this until some months ago. I remember that my mother used to go through the back of the New York Post and find uh, advertisements. Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx used to run experiments on brothers under 14 years of age, no more than two years apart. And they'd put you in this room and attach all these electrodes to you. And they wouldn't give you drugs or anything, but they just attack all this equipment to you, and they give you 15 bucks for it. So my mother would go through the back of the New York Post and say, boys, I found an experiment for you. <laughs> and load up into the car. It was like a bad Bugs Bunny cartoon. And put us in this room with all of this crap. And I never saw any of the money, which really pissed me off. But I was trying to imagine doing that with my son, looking in the paper to try to find a good experiment for the boys. Um... If you got anything for free in my family, it meant it was stolen. And uh, my uncle was a welder, and he used to get three bales of steel wool. And uh, his wife, my aunt, Rose, uh, took a decorating course and made throw pillows and filled all the throw pillows with the steel wool. <laughs> so after a while, that stuff works its way through on you. So when you go to their house and you look at the room, everyone was moving a little bit. You know what I mean? It's a little spin on the room, a little English on the whole room. If you're new here, all I have is good news. Um, my family did not have one single solitary thing to do with making me an alcoholic. And I, I mean not one thing to do with it. I'm not saying that my family wasn't nuts. They were nuts. I'm not saying that a lot of damage didn't get done. It did. I'm saying they didn't make me an alcoholic. If they had, if my family had truly made me an alcoholic, I could go to psychotherapy, I could work out my family problems, and I could drink properly. Right? I wouldn't have to go to uh, parties anymore and say, no, no heroin for me, I'll have a Perrier, right? I wouldn't have to do that anymore. I could just be like the normal people. <clears throat> if alcoholism is a threefold illness, if it's a bizarre physical allergy to alcohol that dooms me to have little or no control over how much I drink once I begin to, begin to drink, and this weird physical reaction to alcohol is mixed with some fascinating thinking. One of my favorite examples of alcoholic thinking I had ever heard was in my old home group, this guy had been dragged from his car drunk, and he was chained to a bench in the police station, and he just urinated on himself. And he looked at this policeman and he said, I have got to stop driving. <laughs> he didn't have a driving problem. He didn't know how do you, how do you develop, how can you stop having a driving problem and start having a problem with alcohol? That's, that's you know, again, if you don't catch alcohol, then you die from it, and if you catch it, you get better. 
Well, this fascinating thinking that dooms me to take the first drink, no matter the attendant misery and suffering that follows every time I drink. So this bizarre thinking, this strange mental twist, and it's once a certain kind of thinking becomes established in people with alcoholic tendencies. What kind of thinking? It's enumerated beautifully in the second and third chapters of our book. It says, if you've been getting drunk exactly the wrong time, if you fail to recall with sufficient force the memory of the pain and humiliation of a day, a week, a second ago, and repeat the same insane behavior over and over again, if you build up a bright outlook for yourself and your family and rip it down around your ears in a senseless series of sprees, you could have alcoholism. If you don't, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what is your problem, man? You might do well to catch alcoholism. <laughs> and it says, once this thinking has become established in someone with alcoholic tendencies, I'm assuming someone who has this proclivity towards the physical allergy, once this thinking and this, and this physical stuff mixes together, it sort of creates this cancer of the soul, this soul sickness. That once alcoholics are in the clutch of it, they are a baffled lot. And uh, so if alcoholism is physical, if it's mental, these things mix together and create the spiritual. If it is threefold and I'm trying to treat this illness with psychotherapy, which would be mental, then I'd be twofold short, right? That'd be onefold and I'd be twofold short. It's kind of like showing up to a gunfight with a knife, you know. And uh, I was unprepared and I didn't even know it because I was doing good work in psychotherapy, but I was dying. <clears throat> so I, I grew up. And, and again, if you're new here... Uh, you, you might real feel, feel real bad about your family. You might have had a lot of stuff done that you really think is unfair and really might be hurtful to you. And I'm not telling you you're wrong. But I will tell you this. If you expect to treat your alcoholism by treating those problems, my heart goes out to you. Uh, I tried it my whole life and I almost died from it. I was doing, I was, again, I, 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 I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. Um, and, and uh, as I was growing up in the Bronx, in, in addition to growing up with this crazy family and, and, uh, and, and seeing this therapist, which I thought was going to really help me out because I thought this self-knowledge was really going to really hook it for me, you know, solve the problem for me. In addition to the self-knowledge from psychotherapy, what I did was I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk, and I overcame uh, my alcohol problem with marijuana. Um, I'd like to welcome all the pot smokers here uh, today. You remember WOW, right? <laughs> WOW. Wow. And then usually right after wow came what? <laughs> what? Wow. What? Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum, you know? <laughs> There's like a lot of activity but very little movement, man. But there is a lot of shit going on there, you know? Uh I triumphed over marijuana with pills. Uh I was victorious over pills with cocaine. Uh, cocaine is also an excellent drug. Uh, it's particularly good for sex, uh, if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was victorious over uh, cocaine with heroin. Heroin is a very good, dark, artistic, complicated drug. Then you cross the line and become a vomiting pig. Just a little hop, skip, and a jump. And you don't want to do that too long, you know. So I drank till I didn't want to be a drunk. And in addition to this self-knowledge I was attaining from psychotherapy, I slept at swapping these addictions. I was, I was never like the bad guy. I was always moving on, and I managed to not catch alcoholism until I was 33 years old as a result of swapping addictions and as a result of self-knowledge. Um, I had some very difficult times. Uh, as a young man, I uh, um, uh, had a lot of bad luck. I, I sold heroin to a New York City policeman. Um, terrible stuff happened to me. I was asked to leave a couple of educational institutions, and uh, the cop wasn't even wearing a uniform, you know, uh, 
they don't they don't play fair. And uh, man, and uh, when I was growing up, my father really thought he was a loser, and I I absolutely agreed with him. I, I thought he was uh, just a sap, you know. My dad never made more than ten thousand dollars a year, to the best of my knowledge. My brother and I never missed a meal and never went to school with ripped clothing. Um, my last year out there, I made eighty thousand dollars. Both of my sons did attend school with ripped clothing, and they did miss meals. How can such a thing happen? Hey, put those two pictures down next to each other. How can my father come up a loser in my mind? And I'm telling you, he did. The only way that I can understand it is I had so rearranged my life to accommodate alcoholism because I'm always going to answer the call. I'm always going to make it to the drink. No matter what, no matter what I say. It might start out as, a, as the truth over here. It might get a little murky over here, and it's usually an out-and-out lie by the time I get over here. But I'm always going to get to the drink. And when I was young, getting to that drink was a pretty simple endeavor. And as I grew older and promises to myself, careers, marriage, children, all this stuff gets thrown in, and the, the trip to the drink becomes unbelievably circuitous, you know? And, and the description of Step 5, it talks about it, leading a double life, crushing these memories down. This makes for more drinking. doesn't make for drinking. The only thing that makes for drinking that I know, alcoholic drinking, is alcoholism. And um, I had rearranged my life enough so that I could take a look at my life and my father's life and call my dad a loser. And uh, I set some really lofty goals for myself as a young man. And by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had reached or surpassed them all. By the time I got to AA, I had a book on the bestseller list. I had acted in a Broadway play. I had directed a television show. I directed a movie. I had had my own theater in New York. I had done all of these things a ton. Uh, I, I never got to do any of them more than once. Because um, <laughs> when I leave, they'd, they'd move the business so I couldn't find it again, you know. And, and the reason why I was to find out later when I took the alcoholic test. If you're new here, they're going to tell you there's no test for alcoholism, and they're lying. Uh, we, we got a test, it's called an inventory, and, and it's in our book, and, and it's a pass-pass situation. If you just do the inventory, you'll pass it. And sometimes guys I sponsor, they'll, they'll call me up and they'll start writing and they'll say, geez, you know, this feels so bad. Can I just come over and read you what I have, you know? And I always encourage them not to. I always say, you know, the guys who wrote this book were pretty smart, you know? They, they don't say, write a little, read a little, write a little, read a little. They say, do searching and fearless. If you've been thorough, you've written down a lot. I don't know what a lot is for anybody in this room. I know what a lot was for me. How could I possibly tell a man that you've you got to write X amount on your inventory? I don't know what a lot is for a guy, you know. Um, but I figure if you can wait and read the whole thing, if you can write the whole thing and read the – I think they knew if you could read the whole thing, you might be so overwhelmed by the picture of your alcoholism because you'll see the picture of your alcoholism if you write an inventory. You might be so crushed under the weight of it that it might be clear to you for a moment that your plan is not working out. It simply is not working out, and you might be willing to use somebody else's plan. You might be so deflated of ego at depth that you can stick around here. Not a common thing, you know. And when I took the, the uh, and, and, and the web, the web of alcoholism, I'm resentful at him. I'm resentful at me for resenting him. I'm resentful at them for watching me resent them. And I've had sex with all of them, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't believe I hit the bowl in the morning, man. I mean, if you take a look at the, the web of the soul sickness of alcoholism, and that's how it's described in our fifth chapter, and it's broken down into resentments, the uh, uh, defects that feed them, fears, and sexual problems. I'm sure it excites you if you are know that you get to do a sexual inventory. Uh, I know I was oh so excited about it. Usually when a guy's beginning a sexual inventory, I'll go through, you know, the tent up, and I'll go through a list of stuff I've done, and, you know, the guy usually relaxes one day. 
Guy starts and I said, well, I did this and this. And I looked down, the guy's looking at me like this. <laughs> said, You're disgusting. You know, it looked like you wanted a shower, you know, really. Backfired on me. Uh, <laughs> but when I took the, the, the picture of my alcoholism, when I took the alcoholic test, that fourth step, I saw that early on people were doing things behind my back. A little later on they started talking behind my back, and in the last few years, they started thinking behind my back. And that's a terrible thing. Uh, it's hard to catch them uh, when they're thinking behind your back. Uh, you can catch them, though. you got to accuse them of it all the time, you know. And you'll eventually get it. If they weren't thinking behind your back before, you'll make it so. <clears throat> um, I was uh, in a, a cycle of using hypodermics, and, and uh, my father had a massive stroke, and I was taken to the hospital, and I couldn't be there for my dad. I... Uh, I just couldn't be there for him. I was loaded on heroin the night that he died. I had holes in my arm. The curtain was down, and I felt like a pig, like an animal. Uh, my father was lost to me. There's probably a few times in a kid's life when you ought to be there for a dad, and that was certainly one of them, and I couldn't answer the call. And uh, you know those horrible memories, and, and they start clearing up. I just want to tell you, if you're new, if you're having memories now where you just wince, where it just comes up, it's that horrible black cold place that no light is ever going to enter. And you just, it's like getting blindsided by a brick. You know when you're new and you're traveling through your community and places are still talking to you, you're an idiot, you're a moron, you know, different corners where you did different stuff, you know. And, and uh, when I was new in AA, there was this uh, this guy at a meeting, and I was I was ready to walk, man. I was, I think, 14 days sober, and I was ready to walk, and this guy at a meeting got his hand up, and he shared that when Urban Cowboy was released in L.A., and everybody started buying cowboy boots, you know, real fast. And he went right out and bought a pair of $500 green anaconda skin cowboy boots, wore them once and never wore them again. And he said every morning when he opens his closet, those boots look at him and say, hello, moron. <laughs> <laughs> and I am telling you, I had never heard an adult man admit something like this. I said, help me stay an alcoholic as much as any. You know, there's probably some guys who were actually sober in the room going, Oh, why is this guy allowed to share, you know? But he helped me stick around Alcoholics Anonymous one more day. I know it because everything in my house was talking to me, man. You know, and all the play as I drive around, I know those dirty films with a newspaper, you know, spins up. Scott Redman's a moron, you know, over and over and over again. Uh, and, uh, uh, my dad was gone. I swore I would never put a needle in my arm again because that was my problem. My problem was the hypodermics and my problem was the heroin. And I swore I would never put a needle in my arm again ever. And I didn't. And, uh, I couldn't go into hospitals. I couldn't hear heart machines beep. I couldn't look at pictures of my father. I couldn't talk about him. I couldn't. He was gone. He was lost to me. And, uh, shortly after this, I, uh, I met a remarkable woman, a beautiful, intelligent woman, an exotic woman. She was from Detroit. Um, and that was exotic to me. I'd grown up in the Bronx my whole life, man. I didn't know, I didn't know anybody that hadn't been brought up in New York. And she was from the Midwest and I just, I was acting on a Broadway show and I was playing a greaser in this, uh, this show about the fifties, man. I had my cigarettes rolled up in my sleeves, man. I got to play loud, unruly rock and roll music, you know, and, and, uh, and that's where she saw, she was an usherette in the theater and I, I saw her once and I went back to the dressing room and I stood on a chair and I said, if any moron talks to the new usherette with brown hair, I'll break all the tiny bones in your hands and feet. So for the next two weeks, every time a guy would walk near Nancy, he'd go, and dash away. And we just, it was fabulously romantic. It was beautiful. We just, just 
fell in love with each other. And uh, <clears throat> we were two young people on top of the world. I was in a Broadway show. We had some dough. We were in New York, you know. I met her on the rebound from a communist commune. <laughs> she had been a member of a Marxist commune in uh, in Michigan. She went right from the commune to me. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and we didn't know uh, that there was a cancer in our house, that there was a tapeworm in the middle of us. We didn't know it was alcoholism. And, and my wife became very sick from prolonged exposure to me. We became so sick together that at one point uh, a guy lent us his car, and we sold his car. Uh, I will I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as I live. He said, "You sold my car? I I, I lent you my car. What, what are you What are you talking? That's like house sitting for someone, and they come back, and you're an escrow man, you know? And you're proud of what you've done." Silkworth talks about it in the doctor's opinion. He says the alcoholic life becomes the only normal one, you know. Fifteen years later, when I called this guy to pay him back, his voice was exactly the same. He said, you're paying me back? <laughs> he was a lot more surprised with the second call. I know I was. Um, one day I came home. We had these 32-ounce uh, tumblers in the house, and I popped a cork on a bottle of wine. I emptied the entire bottle of wine into this cleft. And I turn around, and Nancy's giving me the rat face, the pre-Alanon rat face. This one, you know, the full rat face. I said, "What?" She said, "What? What are you doing?" And completely seriously, I looked at her in the eyes and I said, "I'm having a glass of wine." <laughs> Can a man have a glass of wine in his own home? <laughs> she threw it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Look up glass? I mean, you going to argue with this? Uh, I was working in a restaurant in New York, and I wasn't going to let these guys treat me like they had treated my dad, you know, uh, pay me an honest day's uh, wage for an honest day's work, and I stole thousands of dollars uh, for these, from these guys, and we went on a belated honeymoon to the Italian Alps. When your coffee man takes his wife to the Alps, <laughs> something's amiss. My job was to pump cappuccino that's like, I'm going to Europe with my wife. We're in the Italian Alps, staying in a medieval village on a lake in the Alps. Probably be enough for a normal person, right? They make cognac right there on the mountain range. It's a couple of bucks a fifth. I'm drinking a couple of fifths a day. One night after dinner, I finish a fifth of cognac. I look up, I'm getting the rat face again. I said, what? She said, well, what, what, what are you doing? And I said, sweetheart, this is fresh cognac. They make this right here. This has not had time to develop the alcohol content. <laughs> That's a cognac in the state. The, the boat ride screws it up. <laughs> and we got sicker and sicker and sicker together and I, I couldn't stop stealing and uh, we had we had two children and just beautiful beautiful kids and, and uh, when our older son was born in New York we were surrounded by friends and family there was a ton of phone calls and uh, you know flowers in the room you know friends and, and he was really welcomed into the world and really in a way that a kid should be welcomed into the world Two years and nine months later, when our younger son was born, there was nobody at the hospital. There were no flowers, no friends, no phone calls. We had been completely isolated by the disease of alcoholism. What a terrible way to come and hit the floor, you know, when you're a kid. He was, he was not, Jesse was not welcomed into this world. And I, a couple hours after Jesse was born, he wound up in neonatal intensive care. He got real sick. And, uh, we were so isolated by the disease of alcoholism. The ice around our heart had become so thick. And people were not there, not because they didn't love us, because it hurt too much to be around us. 
I couldn't find anybody to watch my older son so I could go in and be with my wife in the hospital and because our kid was sick. I, cu- I couldn't find it. There was nobody there. You know, This doctor who I'd never met before, the doctor from neonatal intensive care, who I'd never met before, called me up and said, your wife really needs you. And I said, there's nothing I can do about it. I have nobody to watch my older child. And this doctor, a complete stranger, said to me on the phone, here's my address. Take your son to my house and leave him with my husband. And I said, no. There's no way that I could possibly have accepted help. I was too sick. You know, what a remarkable thing for a stranger to do. You know, the only place I've seen that since is in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, our family became uh, sicker and sicker and sicker together. Uh, by the time I got sober, our older son, uh, Micah, Micah tested an excessive 168 IQ, and he could barely read or write. He was seven years old. He was reading grades years below his grade level. He was making these Ill- involuntary clicking noises with his throat that he couldn't stop making in class. He was totally distracted from being terrified all the time because nothing ever worked out the way it was supposed to work out. If you get in between me and the drink, you've got to vanish or you've got to turn into paper mache. You either have to disappear or you have to become something less than human. Paper mache, cardboard. You know, because i got to answer the call. I'm going to answer the call. I might not do it today. I might wait a day. But believe me, I'll get there. Always. And if you're my kid, you either got to vanish or you got to become something less than human. How much vanishing can a child bear before they believe what they're being taught, which is that they don't exist? Children have such little ego strength to begin with, and they're depending on us to be the kind of template of that growth. And in my active alcoholic home, the children just, they live in this half-lit world. It was like a psychological theme park, you know. Sometimes things wound up, and it didn't matter what I said over here. It only mattered over here because the, uh, the bike money might have had to go for alcohol, you know. Uh, it, it, it only matters what happens over here. And uh, our children paid a, a terrible price uh, from the disease of alcoholism. They, they were cut off from the society of other children, and they never had the right stuff. And I'm not talking about a lot of money, man. I'm talking about a couple of bucks. I'm talking about a lunchbox and a pair of jeans. I'm not talking about hundreds of dollars. I'm talking about something a working joke can do, you know. And the days when they got the, the, the jeans or they got the lunchbox, it was given to them with such completely inappropriate excitement, stuff that should have been a pretty pedestrian thing, stuff that people are doing, right, was given to them with such insane, inappropriate excitement and exuberance that it felt marked. It felt dirty somehow, and it still cut them out from the pack. And uh, our boys really, uh, really suffered terribly from... Uh, living in an in a, uh, active alcoholic home. And, and what started becoming acceptable, I, one t- Nancy came home one day and I had, I had an idea to cook something and I had died in the middle of the idea. I had gone toxic, I'd overdosed. She came home and the oven was on and I had a frying pan on my chest and I was blue on the floor. And she nudged me with her foot and she said, how do you feel? And I looked at her and I said, I am really tired. And uh, she called a doctor and said, he's blue, there's an empty vial of pills. And he's on the floor, and the doctor said, why are you calling me? Why are you calling the paramedics? Why are you calling the ambulance? And Nancy hung up the phone and picked it up and dialed another doctor to get a second opinion. (laughs) (laughs) This was our home. Uh, This was our Donna Reed show. And um, uh, as I told you, the careers kept getting destroyed, and we kept getting sicker and sicker, and the boys were getting nuttier and nuttier. And Nancy, my wife, just, you know, she uh, she had nothing to dull it, nothing to dull the pain. You know, she uh, 
she, the, the non-alcoholic uh, who stays with the alcoholic who suffers from the disease of alcoholism does it with no anesthetic, man. She looked like a tendon with an attitude. I mean, she was so insane and so... At any rate, uh, 13 years later, after my, the night my father died, I, put a, I crossed the line I swore I would never cross again. I put a needle in my arm again. I crossed the line that I had always had that always made me okay. And uh, I uh, called my therapist of record, my first Jungian therapist, which I want to talk a little bit about tonight. And I told him what I had done. And he said to me that morning, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. And I said, what? He said, there's nothing I can do for you. The only thing I can suggest is that you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or we have you institutionalized. Now, on most other mornings, I'm telling you, man, I would have gladly chosen the institution. Take me to the nut hut as quickly as possible. That would have been a chance to meet more interesting and colorful people, you know, the, the kinds of adventurous people I was used to associating with, and it was an uninterrupted source of drugs for a period of time. I mean, in my last couple of years, I got excited when they told me I needed dental surgery, you know. Um, uh, that, that is an uninterrupted source of drugs for a period of time. Normal people don't get excited about dental surgery, you know. Normal people don't go, hmm, dental surgery. <laughs> and, and yet there's a couple of heads bobbing up and down, and you always know you're at an AA meeting, because that doesn't happen at the Lions Club. Nobody goes, you know. <laughs> Nobody goes, dental surgery. Um, and yet since I've been in AA, I have met people who have submitted to much more serious operations and dental surgery in order to get loaded. What a club. Um, why I went to the AA meeting, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I don't know why. I, uh, I set my alarm. I, I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I put on my best clothes. Got a bad check to write to. And went to a 7 a.m. meeting. You know, I don't, you know, I went to report to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if you've ever been to a 7 a.m. meeting, but, you know, people are just hanging on by a thread, you know. Uh, most of them have their underwear on the outside of their clothing, you know, at 7 a.m. meetings. And I walked in with all of my best clothes on, just, you know, newcomer nuts. Every part of my face moving in a different direction. You know, you know that newcomer look. You leave a trail of light when you walk. You know the guys, right? Insane. And if you're in this room and you're anything like me when I was new, you're sitting in this room tonight, you're looking around and you're saying to yourself, Alcoholics Anonymous. How did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. Welcome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And that's exactly what I did that, that morning. I, I just couldn't believe it. I just sat in that seat and said to myself, I'm a major guy and I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, I couldn't tell you why I stuck around. Uh, I, the only thing, uh, and I've thought this often, one of the reasons I think I stuck around is that I was out of plans. And if you're new here, I pray for you that you're out of plans. If you're new here and you have a plan, <laughs> it's probably abuse. <laughs> Don't use your plan. Grab one of us after this meeting and tell us the plan. We want to know your plan. That's actually the book I've always wanted to see is the collection of newcomer plans. <laughs> After I was to stick around a while and read our literature, I was to find out, and it certainly helped me stick around Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time for a while, I was to find out that Carl Jung, and I had just started seeing this Jungian therapist, played no small role in the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
who was an American millionaire named Roland Hazard who couldn't stop drinking, and he had a lot of money. And he put himself into psychotherapy in Vienna with a guy named Carl Jung, one of the fathers of modern psychology. And he was analyzed by Jung. He loved Jung. He had a great relationship with him. He was analyzed by him, and he went right out and drank. And he went back to Jung, and once I was to read this, I, it, it was my spiritual experience. Jung said to him, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. These alcoholics of your description have gotten sober down through the ages as a result, at times, of a spiritual rearrangement. I try to bring about it in you. I have failed. There's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. And this guy, Roland Hazard, said to Jung, well, hold it. I'm a deacon in my church, you know. It'll be okay. And Jung said, no, that won't do it. That won't get after it. Bill Wilson describes it in his story. He describes what Jung was talking about. He talks about a guy named Ebby who came into his house. Ebby had been 12-step by Roland Hazard. Once Hazard found God in the Oxford groups at that period of time. And Ebby came into Bill's house, and Bill said of him so beautifully in the story, he says, Ebby's roots grasped a different soil. That's the, how deep this guy's rearrangement had been. For his roots to grasp a different soil, that is, that is truly something. And, um, and I stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I stuck around here. Uh, I hated you. I, I just hated you. I hated the, everything was a miracle. The meeting's a miracle. The furniture's a miracle. The coffee's a miracle, you know. Uh, I just, I, I couldn't believe it, man. You know, if you're new, you are now privy to an unending, unsolicited reservoir of information and advice. So you're gonna get right up in your face and talk this long AA crap to you. It is usually a guy with one tooth with a cavity in it, you know. Do I want what you've got? No. No. But thank you so much for sharing. He's usually wearing a belt buckle large enough to serve a whole fish on. You, you know this guy. You know who I'm talking about. And, uh, I mean, I would sit and listen to these guys and I'd say to myself, man, I'm here. Isn't it bad enough that I'm here? My life is over. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous and now I gotta listen to this crap. And, and to me, there were two kinds of guys in the program. There were the book morons and the god morons, you know? Sometimes you'd find your occasional book god moron, you know? But I mean, I just, I, guys would get up and share, oh, another book moron, oh, a god moron. And sometimes the guy would just share who was in pain, and I go, yeah! <laughs> I wanna hear that guy, you know? And, um, but what started happening was, my wife reached out to the Yellenon family groups, and she knows exactly what day because she walked into her first Al-Anon meeting and said, my name is Nancy and my husband is 37 days sober. That's about as much airplay as I've gotten at an Al-Anon meeting since. And uh, the, new, the old timers started drooling when they heard her identify that way. And, um, and my children stopped being so scared because the money started coming home. Alcoholics Anonymous was like rearing its head in my house despite me, you know. And one of the most confusing and hurtful things to me that I found as a newcomer but I heard people telling Al-Anon jokes at AA meetings. And I'm not talking about good-natured jokes. Guy doesn't tell enough good-natured jokes about alcoholics. I'm talking about mean-spirited uh, jokes. And I'll just tell you, for me, I found it very hurtful and very confusing because I was very proud of my wife that she had the guts to admit something was wrong with her and was reaching out and pursuing her own miracle. I was happy that she was doing it, and I was proud of her. And it's the first time I had been proud of her in a long, long time. And if you, you know, uh, if you, if you're, uh, and it was before I was too young on the program to know that the guys who were making those jokes were ignorant and didn't know what they were talking about. But I judge no man. Um, <laughs> jokes. I guess you're casting your vote that it's okay. And we all get, you know, I used to get all the votes. I'm, I'm down to one now. And uh, my vote said it's not okay. 
My vote said it's not okay because number one, it's just not true, and and it might it might be hurtful to a guy who might be lucky enough to have a family who's actually reaching out for help and pursuing their own miracle. So uh, I stuck around for six months, and Nancy started going Allen on, and the boys stopped being quite so scared. And uh, I was six months sober, and I was enjoying the gift of step none. Uh, you know the gift of step none. We've all enjoyed the gift of step none at one time or another, and the gift is nothing. That's the gift of step none is nothing. And I was six months sober. I was suffering from untreated alcoholism, and I didn't even know I had alcoholism. I didn't even know what it was. Untreated alcoholism is particularly unattractive in people who are not drinking. If you, if you, if you are drinking, you are treating your alcoholism. It works. It kills your ass, but it works. You know. And I know how to treat it with a drink. But if you're not treating it with a drink, and you're not treating it with the program of action outlined in our book, ooh, man, it is ugly. You can pick them out at the meeting pretty quick. They usually have a, a vein pumping like a garden hose on their forehead. They're, they're a happy and relaxed lot. Um, and I, had, uh, I was here for six months, and I had seen the drill. Right? Do the work, get sober. Do the work, get sober, lead a better life. Don't do the work. Get insane, get to the podium, share your insanity, share your way right out the door. I'd seen the drill. I'd seen it a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of times in just six months. Do the work, stay sober, change. Don't do the work, get sick, get up to the podium, share your sickness, share your way right out the door. And I knew I was going to drink. I knew it. And Alcoholics Anonymous, despite me, had demonstrated itself in my life enough for me to move forward, and I asked a man to sponsor me. And uh, he was a guy who talked about God and didn't sound like a sap to me. Uh, he was happy a lot of the time, and I wanted what this guy had. And I asked him to sponsor me, and he, uh, uh, and you know, this is just for me, and we all have our own stuff, otherwise we all wouldn't be sober, because if you had to stay sober, on oh, my God, you'd be in big trouble and vice versa. I didn't need tough love when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous. I steered as clear away from it as I could. I, guys who were mean, who were telling people to shut up and that they were idiots, even though I'm sure my sponsor thought a lot of those things, I just steered clear of them. I, why would I need your help being mean to me? You can't do me like I do me. You need a full-time staff. I mean, if you're really going to do me like I do me with the commitment that I, I treat myself like crap. And I found a guy who I went to who treated me with a lot of love and a lot of care and a lot of attention and spent a lot of time with me. And he made sure I had done some work some reading in a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says right before the three pertinent ideas in chapter five, you know, if we've read the chapter on alcoholism, the chapter to the agnostic and our personal adventures before and after. So that's kind of like chapters two and three and chapter four and personal adventures before and after, Bill's story, Bob's story. You know, there's some reading to be done there. It says if you've done this reading, it should make clear three pertinent ideas. And then our first two steps are in those, those three pertinent ideas. Uh, and he made sure I'd done that reading and he invited me over to his house and spent hours and hours with me and I couldn't figure out why. I really didn't get it. I really couldn't understand why this, what did this guy want? For fun and for free. And he read chapter five to me, and on the way, way through, he worked the first two steps with me. We reached the third step prayer, we got on our knees, we made a decision together, he took me through the third step, we made a decision. He finished reading chapter five to me, and then we went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you hear some people say, and I know it's absolutely true for them, that they mostly resented themselves. I know it's true for them, and I know it's absolutely not true for me. I hated me, but nothing compared to how much I hated you. 
I hated you so much more than I hated me, it's difficult to describe, you know. And uh, one, of the, one of my favorite things is when I give instructions in a four-step is when a guy says, I really have no resentments. <laughs> and then you get to ask the guy the questions like, uh, so you like everyone in your family. Uh, you liked everyone in elementary school. You're a friend of the clergy. <laughs> and you get to ask them those questions, and the cracks start appearing. They're usually like a bubbling cauldron of venom by the time they leave your house. But just to start getting in there and start stirring it up a little bit, not make a guy miserable, but just to, because our soul sickness is, is based on resentment. And um, I, uh, I did my fourth step, and I finished it in three months. I came back to my sponsor at nine months of sobriety and read my fifth step to him. And, uh, and I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. I joined AA. If you're new here and you're finding these meetings confusing, I want to urge you to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if you read it and you, and you work a little with a guy who seems to understand it, you can come to these meetings and hear people share, and you'll be able to go, oh, he's talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. He's not talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but I judge no man. And uh, I joined AA, and I came back and, and read my fifth step to my sponsor at nine months of sobriety. I did step six and seven for the first time, and then it, it came time to do my eight-step list. And, uh, man, the best reading of the eighth step I've ever heard in my life took place at my old home group, and it was done by a guy who I had never seen before, and I've never seen him since, and I'll never forget him. His name was Nino. He had a heavy New York accent. He was there at a hospital group, and he had never read Chapter 5 before. He was reading it for the first time. He had a hospital plastic on his wrist. And he got up to step eight. He had a heavy New York accent. And he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! (laughs) (laughs) And and he he looked out into the room as if to say, have you seen it? Do you know what's in here, man? It was so beautiful. It was so perfect. It was so pure. Because it's all I saw when I saw the steps. It's all. No, no, not those people. Not that money. I wouldn't have taken that much money, man. Not if I knew I was going to pay it back. No way. Not the car. So if you're new here, don't worry about it. It's eight steps from where you are anyway. So it's it's really not eight eight that's that's annoying. It's it's nine. Nine, seven. So I had to do my A-step list, and uh, I didn't want to put my dad down there. My uh, sponsor said, the omen amends. I said, yeah. He said, put him down. I said, Don, he's dead. There's nothing I can do. Don said, you omen amends. You put him down. I said, well, what am I going to do? And my sponsor, and this is again, because a lot of guys do a lot of different stuff. They'll go to the grave, and they'll talk, and they'll write a letter, and it is all totally valid. I sponsor men who have done these things. Whatever road we take to, to shine that light in our soul again is fine. For me, I couldn't do those things. And I said, what am I going to do? And he said, Scott, I don't know. Do your job in Alcoholics Anonymous and see what happens. Just do your job. And I started doing my job in AA. And uh, I had to put my wife down there and my kids. Now, what was I going to do? Uh, let's see. I sit down with the boys and say, boys, sorry you've had no life. Okay? <laughs> and then I'll sit down with Nancy and I'll say, See, sweetheart, I'm sorry about this eight-year trip to Hades. Forgive me? (laughs) I don't think so. I had to start doing some really lame shit. I had to start, like, acting like a father, you know? And I want to tell you something. 
It was only because my sponsor was showing me this love and care and kindness and attention that I was able to start showing it to my sons. I don't know what I would have done. You know, I don't know why I, I, I gravitated to this man. I never hung out with nice people. I used to go, my whole life, I went to drowning people and asked for swimming lessons. My whole life. And when all they would say is glub, 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 I would get pissed off at them. I mean, that's what I did. And I, I went to this guy for something he had to give me. I mean, it's really quite astounding. And so I started showing up for flag football, you know, and coaching flag football and doing all this lame crap, you know, and showing up for Little League games. And instead of saying to my son, go do your homework, I had to start saying, do you need help with your homework? Now, I couldn't help him because I'm a functional illiterate in a lot of ways, but if he needed help, maybe I could go get him a tutor. Maybe I could go get him some books. Maybe I could go spend some heroin money on some school supplies. Maybe I could go do some stuff. And uh, I started acting like a father. And uh, I started showing up at the Little League games. When my wife comes to this Little League game, she takes, she walks towards the field and just takes one look and falls down laughing. Here's the crowd, and the first baseline stands together. And here's me in the sun alone, pissed off. Right? In the sun alone. I'm here. I'm doing my job. I'm making amends. I'm doing my job. <laughs> it took me two years to get over in the stands, man. It took me two seasons of Little League, because as I did the work in the big book of Alcohol Psalms, the noise became quieter and the voices fewer in my head. I was able to start going over there and just sitting with the other people. A couple of years ago, my younger son received one of the greatest compliments a young boy can receive in this particular arena. He was intentionally walked during a game. Now, if you're not a fan, that means they're scared of you. And they're going to put you on so they can get to another guy. It's quite a compliment. And uh, Jesse didn't want to jump up and down and scream and be a geek. You know, he, he uh, put his bat down, and he trotted up the first baseline. And on the way up the, way the first baseline, he looked at me, and he shot me a little stuff. He just shot me a little look. And I could have missed the whole thing. Now, I'm not telling you that my son got intentionally walked because I got sober. I'm telling you I got to be on the first baseline because I got sober. I could have missed the entire thing. Um, <clears throat> when I was about a year sober, I, uh, I was uh, online um, to get lunch for work, and there was this guy in front of me, and he was, uh, he was buying a can of cold 45 malt liquor with, you know, loose change and lint and a half-eaten milk dud. You know the guy, right? He had been there like a week, you know. And he turned around and he looked at me, and instead of in my best Bronx saying to the guy, what are you looking at? I said, how are you doing? And he said, you don't know how I'm doing. Nobody knows how I'm doing except for the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. So we went outside, and we talked, exchanged numbers with the guy, and that night I went on my first real 12-step call. I got a guy with more time than me. We called some people, and they said, take this guy down to County General, that's County USC Hospital, a real palace, uh, that's the county facility downtown. I'm like, take him out of county USC and dump him off at the door. Don't go in with him. Don't show them that he's got any resources. Dump him off at the door and book. And I don't know why, but we didn't do that. We went in with the guy. We went all the way up to the alcoholic ward with the guy. And about halfway through, he turns to us and he says, I feel like I'm dying. And the guy I'm with says to him, that's because you are. And I pulled the guy aside and I said, how could you say such an insensitive mean thing to this guy. I'm scared he's not going to like us, right? How could you say this to this? Now, the guy is in a county facility. He's been told to lie that he's got blood in his urine to break his way into the alcoholic ward. 
What do you think that's supposed to say? You're just having a bad day. It's a bad day. This isn't a bad day. This is what dying feels like. I'll let you know when you're having a bad day. You're in no danger of that right now. This is exactly what dying feels like. If you stick around here for any appreciable amount of time, you'll see men and women come into this program with bottoms that will make your hair stand on end. You will look at that man or woman and you will say, no way, man. The cat's never going to drink again. Not with what he's been through this time. There is no possible way that he will drink again. And after a, a period of time, when they don't use the program of action outlined in our book, it won't be their bottom anymore. It'll be a bad day. A period of time where people were thinking behind their back, a bad set of breaks, and they will get out there and they will get on with the business of dying. And it, it still makes my blood run cold. I hope it never, ever stops doing that. You know, we hear in the program sometimes, better you than me. And, yeah, sure. But the fact is, is the guys who I told I love who are dead today, I meant it when I told it to them. I love them. And they don't get to get sober again because they're dead. My kids miss them. My wife misses them. They were part of our lives, and they're dead, you know. Um, in my first uh, year of sobriety, I, I turned about a year sober, and I had a... Uh, Fancy myself a show business big shot. I had, a, um, had this ghostwriting job for 20th Century Fox, and at the end of the year, I was up to direct this situation comedy. And, and it was a good job, man. I really wanted this job. I didn't get the job, and I almost drank. And uh, I went to my sponsor. I was just humiliated, and I told him what I had done, and, and Don said to me, you know, Scott, I guess, uh, I guess you, got, you, know, you still have the show business, God. And uh, when I came in AA, I heard people talking about God getting them into relationships, God getting them jobs, you know, God getting them parking spaces. Not the parking God, not the parking God. Oh, my God. What if you don't get a space, you know? Uh, and, and what happened was it was clear to me I had to get God not involved in parking in any way. And I'm not putting – some people have a parking God. That's fine. I – it was killing me. I had the show business God because I was going to drink because I didn't get a job in show business. And I had to sit down and write my tenth step. You know, I was resentful at the company for not giving me the job. I was resentful at myself for almost drinking. And, uh, and Don said to me, you know, when you do step six and seven here, you better, you, you better discuss with your God what you are going to have to do to stay sober if you have the show business, God. And when I did step six and seven, I, I, I said my prayer and I said, Father, you can have this too. Take this too. Take show business too. I'll do anything. I'm willing to do anything. Just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I was on a catering truck, and I looked up to God, and I said, I, I didn't mean this. <laughs> I, I didn't mean We've had a grotesque misunderstanding. I didn't mean this. And... uh In L.A., when you, uh, when you work on one of these catering trucks, and uh, when they make a TV show or a movie... Uh, they have a caterer that follows them around and feeds the film crew. And you make a lot of dough, man. It's Teamster dough. I mean, but it's a real good Teamster job. You make a lot. It's a great job. But I'm Scott Redden, right? <laughs> so I'm catering movies. And I'm making good dough and I'm bringing the money home. And the first movie I catered, the executive producer and star of the movie is the guy I've worked with in the business. And that first morning he sticks his head on the truck and he says, uh, can I have a burrito? Scott? And I, I turn around and I said, What's happening, man? And he said, well, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. 
I got home, I called my sponsor, and I said, oh, we're getting the gift of sobriety now. Oh, are we getting the gift? It's a miracle. <laughs> he said, sounds like you've got a resentment. And I sat down and I wrote, I'm resentful at Scott for working on a kitchen truck. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex. A five-bagger for sure. <laughs> what am I going to ask God to take away? Right? Resentment's no big deal. It's just the source of all spiritual disease, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. It'll cut you off from the sunlight and the spirit, take your ass out and kill you dead. But don't be alarmed. No big deal. Work a step a year. You don't hear that pearl a lot anymore. <clears throat> this is life or death. I'm going to die. What am I going to ask God to take away? In step six and seven, what am I going to ask him to take away? The guy, the burrito, the truck? What am I asking God to take away? God's got a magic wand. He comes down and touches me on the head. Blue skies. What is it in me if it was it would disappear, this poison would be gone, and I'd be able to live? I'm grandiose. How dare a man of my caliber work on a kitchen truck, make money, and bring it home? I'm impatient. Things aren't moving along. I'm ashamed. Right? Uh... I'm a retaliator and judgmental. I never have to open my mouth to do that, right? That just happens when my head hits the pillow and it becomes a rotisserie. Uh, I'm ungrateful. I'm working. Guys get sober and they don't get to work. I'm working, right? This is the list I had to take to my God and say, Father, can you please, can you please take this away? It's killing me. You do my work, I'll do your work. It says in the last line of chapter 4, when we, when we drew close to him, he revealed himself to us. This is how I drew draw close to him. Please take this poison away. What can I do for you? The biggest question I've ever asked in Alcoholics Anonymous. What can I do for you? What service can I do? What demonstration can I do? What can I do for you? Otherwise, i got God running all over down doing shit for me. He's running everywhere doing a lot of stuff for me, and I'm sitting home with a new list of orders. <laughs> then I had another resentment at God for putting me on the kitchen truck. God had, had obviously gotten up that morning and said, let's keep Saturn on its axis and get the Redmond boy. Let's get the Redmond boy. Get him, get him, get him. <laughs> and I had to start doing this 10-step work, man, and I kept working on that kitchen truck, and, and I wound up serving people who had been my assistant directors and my stage managers, and I had wound up serving people who I had directed who were actors. And I wound up working my ass off in Alcoholics Anonymous to get right with God and right with myself and to be a free man and to walk with my chin up and be proud of myself. And I, I spent years doing it, and I'm, I'm real proud of the fact that with the help of a loving sponsor and the men that I sponsored, I was able to pull that off. Not that I didn't have slips. Not that I didn't have moments of agony. Uh, one day... I'm serving Grady and I see these three actresses who I, I directed in, a, in, a, in a, a soap opera. And they're coming down the line and, and I, I, I'm ready. I said, I'm a, you know, I'm a man of God now. I have God. I'm with God. And I'm ready. And I, you know, I'm fine. You know, and I got ready. And they didn't recognize me. They uh, just said, can you keep the gravy off the potatoes? And, uh, you know, I didn't get to have my humility moment, uh, which kind of pissed me off. Um, and, uh, I was able to help some guys who had thought they had fallen from a height when they came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I didn't get it. I didn't understand that uh, there's no height to fall from. Uh, uh, the, the top rank here is child of God. Uh, uh, none of us get to fall from anywhere. And once you attain, because there's no head drunk, uh, the top rank in Alcoholics Anonymous, was, which is child of God, there's no place to fall. Um, 
I got to be of some uh, help to some guys because of this humbling experience. I would have preferred to have helped them in a different fashion. Uh, I, <laughs> I had a friend, Paul, who used to who made up this prayer that he told me about. Where he'd say to God, Father, I'm willing to do anything. Just keep me sober, and please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. Um, <laughs> I have this friend who used to be a really big rock and roll star. And, uh, we're, we're, um, uh, I'll call him Jeff, and, and uh, he and I... Uh, uh, sponsored by the same guy, and, and uh, we helped each other a lot because we had both been major dudes in our own, you know, legends in our own minds, and, and now we were uh, trying to stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So Jeff was out in San Fernando Valley uh, digging uh, um, <laughs> fence holes, fence post holes with this 17-year-old kid who's getting sober too, and in the middle of working with this kid starts breaking up laughing, and my friend Jeff says, what's so goddamn funny? And the kid looks at him and goes, I, you know, I always wanted to hang out with rock and roll stars. <laughs> 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 Jeff was so pleased to have been helped. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I learned how to be a good cook, and, and both of the uh, companies that I cooked for asked me to be uh, uh, to go into business with, you know, and uh, that was a tremendous compliment to me. And I've been doing it about three years, and I got a call from a, a company called Ketchum Public Relations, big public relations company in New York, and it was about big time comedy writing job, big dough, man. And I started getting that brain fever back. I wanted this job, you know. I started obsessing on this job. I had to do a videotape for him, you know. And, and uh, I got that brain fever back, and I went mad, man. You know, that, that vein started pumping like a garden hose. And I had to, I crashed and burned before I even found out if I had the job. I bottomed out. I did the 10th step. I released it. I read it to my sponsor, and I got straight with it. About a week later, the phone rings. It's catching public relations. They're calling to tell me I don't have the job. Fine. Hang up the phone. Phone rings. It's this uh, catering company. Can I go to Lake Arrowhead, which is above L.A., and go? Uh, can I cater a commercial up there? I said, yeah, sure. I hop in the catering truck. I get up there, and I grab the call sheet, and I look at who the, ca- the, uh, the commercial's for, and the commercial's for Ketchum Public Relations. Now I'm feeding them. I'm feeding them now. I look over at the end of the truck, and there's a guy with a videotape camera videotaping me. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. <laughs> so now they're going to take the tape. They're going to go back to New York with it. And the guys in New York are going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf there? Oh, that poor, miserable son of a bitch. I called my sponsor. I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Oh, oh, are we getting the gift? And the miracle's a little bigger. <laughs> he said, uh, "He said, well, I guess God had enough writers. If he needed a few cooks today. And then Don said to me, you know, Scott, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum, and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. <laughs> But as long as he's having a good time, you know. (laughs) My wife and I had to stop working on our relationship. My idea of working on a relationship is to talk to you until you change your mind. To talk to you until your eyes roll back in your head and you keel over, and on the way down you go, oh, okay. I had to stop working on a relationship. We had to start working on ourselves and try to bring a better person to the deal. That's that's what we had to start doing. And our marriage, we had an eight-year suicide pact uh, by the time we got into the program. And our marriage, sexually, morally, spiritually, emotionally, was an absolute wreck. And we stayed away from each other for a couple of years. 
We were celibate for over a year in uh, in sobriety. I thought I was, you know, I really thought I was going mad. I had one slip. You see, I knew because my sexual uh, behavior, the kind of sex that I like to have, was so mixed up with drugs and alcohol that I knew that if I had been adulterous that I was going to drink. They were just two completely combined. I know a lot of guys don't experience this. This is my experience. And that's the only way I think I got through that period of celibacy. I did I hit on one woman. I busted myself. I told my sponsor, and I uh, told him what I'd done, and I said, I need to go make amends to this woman. He said, yeah, go apologize, and when you apologize, don't get laid. Oh, that was, that was really cold. But I knew what he was saying. I could go and say, geez, I'm really sorry, and she could say, geez, I'm sorry, you're married, and those were, the, those were golden words for me, because then I could say, me too. And I knew that if I was adulterous, I knew I knew I would drink. It was really, really clear to me. And the first couple of years in the program, Nancy and I stayed away from each other. And um, and it wasn't until our third and fourth years that we really, really started coming together around the children and uh, really started reaching out to each other and, and trying to help one another out. And that was the beginning for me. When I started saying to my wife, can I be of any help to you, uh, when I started coming to my marriage to see what I could bring instead of what I could take, that's when things really, really started turning around for me. Our sexual inventory on page 69 is very explicit. It tells us to write about seven different points. It tells us to write about where we've been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate, where we unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness, and what should we do instead. Not what could I have done. What could I have done? I could have stopped kissing her when I realized she was dead. You know, that's what I could have done. What should I have done? I shouldn't have even been in the state. I shouldn't have even been to the area. I shouldn't have lied. What should I have done? I should have told the truth. Where have I been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate, unjustifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness? What should I have done instead? And when I started doing that inventory, and it's an incredible thing. In the last two paragraphs on page 69, it says, in this way we try to shape a sane ideal for our future sex life. We ask God what to do about each individual situation. He'll help us walk toward it. So I get to actually write about the guy that I'd like to be that I've never acted like and ask God to help me walk toward it. Progress, not perfection. That's a remarkable thing because out there, I told the bartender what kind of guy I wanted to be all the time. And I never acted like it. You know, as a, as a husband, as a father, as a friend. And it says on that page, we will not be the arbiter of anybody's sexual behavior. I sponsor gay men who hate themselves uh, for being gay when they come into AA and have stopped being the arbiter of their sexual behavior. I sponsor straight men who have had homosexual episodes that they thought they would never forgive themselves for or certainly never reveal to another man. Uh, I have been the arbiter of other people's sexual behavior, but for me, I was the arbiter of my own sexual behavior in a way that almost killed me. And um, my whole life, I, I never acted uh, or felt like a grown man. I would stand next to men 10 years younger than me, and I'd say, geez, I wonder what it's like to be grown up. And when I started really applying these seven points to not just sex, but to my relationship, to my marriage, man, I had to really take a look at some extraordinary stuff. Where have I been selfish? I want what I want when I want it. Where have I been dishonest? Well, this was huge for me. <clears throat> I cleaned the house. You might think I cleaned the house because I enjoy living in a clean house. No. I think that a certain amount of housework should be rewarded with a certain amount of sex. <laughs> There should be uh, conversion tables on the back of cleaning products. <laughs> that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex for a certain duration of time. I mean, this is in my head, so I'm never cleaning the house to live in a clean house like a grown man. I'm cleaning the house and going, look, honey, you know, 
<laughs> Why should I have felt like a grown man? I wasn't acting like one. When I started cleaning the house to live in a clean house like a grown man, I started feeling like a grown man. And uh, I'll give you an idea how terrified my wife is of me today. I uh, Some time ago, uh, she said, you've got to take Micah, that's our oldest son, to the uh, dentist. And I said, oh, I have to take him? Where will you be? She said, where will I be? I'll be dancing around the house naked, screaming, I'm not taking him, I'm not taking him. <laughs> okay, is that all right? One of the things I realized, and I, and I want to get uh, talk more about this uh, as the weekend continues and perhaps in our discussions of step eight and nine, is I, uh, I also started appreciating how big a bully my wife had become and uh, how scared I was of her. I was terrified of her. And this was in a house where I was supposed to be the aggressor and the scary one all the time. And the fact is, is I was terrified of her. And I realized that I was five years sober. I was driving home from work, making a lot of dough, driving a beautiful car, and I was scared to drive home. And I realized it was because I was scared of the minefield that I was going to walk into. And I had to start dealing with the fact that my wife bullied me, and I was I was terrified of her. And uh, Chuck C. talked about <clears throat> uncovering, disclosing, and discarding. And this was the way I uncovered it. And then I had to disclose it, which was discuss it with her, discuss it with my sponsor. And then I had to use the uh, inventory process to discard it. And again, I do want to discuss that more about that this weekend. Um, our sons uh, experienced a remarkable recovery from alcoholism. Uh, uh, both of them, uh, my oldest son, who I told you was functionally retarded, wound up being accepted into one of the most prestigious scholastic programs for junior high school students in the United States. Uh, he wound up being accepted into its subsequent sister program. The boys uh, wound up playing guitar, and I play guitar, and Jesse plays drums, and we wound up forming a band that we call the Grateful Redmonds and uh, playing, uh, playing music together. And, and we experienced stuff as a family. This is a family that was so totally isolated that I told you about. And uh, a year, uh, a little over a year ago, um, uh, we lived in Sherman Oaks, California, and, and uh, uh, on April 17th of last year, uh, the earthquake hit, and we were right in the middle of it. Forty uh, percent of the buildings on our block were destroyed. And uh, I thought we were buying it. You know, Nancy claims that I, I left a footprint on her forehead getting out of bed. Um, I, I think she's lying. I really do. Uh, I said my prayer, uh, holy shit. Um, I got a little more spiritual a little later in the day. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the house stopped shaking. And you see, this is just for me. This is just my God. Once I stopped getting the show business God, I stopped. My God got much bigger. And what happened was I get that earthquakes are geology and God is spirituality. I think, and this is just my hunch, this is the way I process things, I think the guys who were thrown to the lions understood that the lions were politics and God is spirituality. Otherwise, I don't see how they could have prayed their way down into the pit. But again, that's just me. So uh, the place stopped shaking and we got uh, dressed and my family walked a couple of blocks away where one of the men I sponsor, who uh, has a five-month-old baby and his wife, and uh, we... Uh, we got them and moved them. Their place was destroyed, and they moved into our place. My sponsor lives close by, and we got to his place. His three-story building was knocked ten feet off its foundation, destroyed. And a man had just been electrocuted in front of Don, and Don held the guy while he passed over. I mean, it, the community was devastated. And, uh, and what happened was my healthy, enthusiastic, committed AA family started swarming each other. The members of Alcoholics Anonymous in this community just started diving on each other, man. You know, moving people in each other's houses, making sure people had money, making sure people had food, you know. We were at one guy's apartment, and uh, 
20 happy, dopey drunks moving this guy out. Everything's getting done. Nobody's screaming at each other. And his next-door neighbor, who's completely alone and completely devastated, says to me, how do you get them? Can I get them? You know? So you got to almost die, you know? Uh, <laughs> vomit a lot, and we might come back. I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. And again, this, this family that I described to you that was so completely isolated from alcoholism is right in the pocket right in the middle of this remarkable community. We were in Vancouver uh, shortly after the earthquake, and this woman up in Vancouver said to me, oh, I'm so glad God got us out of L.A. before the earthquake. And I said, oh, so he likes you, and we're shit. <laughs> Let me get this right. He likes you. He got you out. But he said, get the Redmond boy. <laughs> get him. Leave him in L.A. Screw him up. And, I, and she said to me, well, I guess he just felt that you had a few more lessons to learn. <laughs> get me a drink. Get me a gallon for either hand. Get me a drink. I couldn't stay sober on her God for three seconds. She does. And that's why I don't have to stay sober on her God. She doesn't have to stay sober on mine. I would uh, like to speak to her after her next lesson, though. Uh, <laughs> I hope it's a productive lesson. Um, a guy I sponsor, uh, um, I guess I was about five years sober or something. This guy I sponsor uh, told me to take a hike and get off his back and leave him alone and drop dead. And uh, He ripped some people off in the program. He stole some money. He stole the car. He was making me look pretty bad. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to sit down with him and explain a few things to him. You know. And my sponsor said, you know, you have uh, been telling people where they stand in the universe your whole life. You have so frightfully abused your right to tell people where they stand in the universe, you've lost it. Dr. Bob talks about that at the end of his nightmare. He says, I have so frightfully abused my right to drink, I have lost it. He said, uh, why don't you sit down and write yourself a tenth step? I'm resentful at blank for ripping people off in AA and making me look bad. <laughs> it affects my self-esteem, pocketbook ambition, personal relations, and sex. A little knock in the crotch there, a little ego blow. What are the defects of character in me that if God would remove, the resentment would be gone? What is the poison in me that if God took it away, this would be gone? I'm self-centered. I care more about what's happening to me than what the guy's going through. This is a disease of self, right? Selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking. They're the same, but they're a little different. And when I, get, when I talk to my God, I like to be as specific as I can with him, right? Selfish is wanted all for me. Self-seeking is trying to figure out what's in it for me. And self-centered is figuring it, it's all about me, right? So they're the same, but they're a little different, you know, because otherwise, if I can't get specific with God, then I'm just kind of taking the third step and I'm saying, Father, I'm yours. And he says, well, yeah, you know, I knew that. I'm God. I, I knew you were mine. Uh, but thanks. It's an awfully big gesture and very kind of you. And when, uh, uh, which is fine, but when I can say, Father, do, can you do this? Can you help relieve me here? What can I do for you? That's a relationship. That's a functioning, vital, alive relationship with the living God that you guys, because faith without works is dead. Alcoholics Anonymous is a demonstration of the higher power. This is the most alive, spiritual, anything I've ever been involved with. In. That's a relationship. That's my relationship. And um, <clears throat> I'm a people pleaser. I care more about how I'm seen in AA than what this guy's going through. Here's a new one. I didn't get this till I came in AA and became a spiritual behemoth. Spiritual pride. How dare a man comport himself thusly after coming into contact with a man of my spiritual caliber? <laughs> it's unbelievable. 
<clears throat> and I kept my mouth shut, and I did my 10-step, and uh, sometime after this, this guy found out he had a fatal illness, and he called the county uh, uh, agency, and they said to him, all we can do is take you down to county general and dump you off at the door. And I knew that that wasn't true because I had done my job in Alcoholics Anonymous with that, with that other guy. And I guess he couldn't call anybody else because maybe the guys around him had told him what they thought of him or he had burnt them out. I was the only guy left he could call because I hadn't told him what I had thought of him because I had done my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened for me was when I got to be there for this guy and pick him up and take him to the hospital and be there and tell him I adored him and held and do whatever I did, I got to be there for another man and participate and help him pass when I couldn't be there for my father. And my father came back into my life. And I felt his presence again. I had my dad back. And that horrible, black, cold place was gone. And it says in the tenth step, it says the alcohol problem will be removed. We won't even be cocky. It'll just be gone. And this has been true with all this other weight that I have come into Alcoholics Anonymous with. My father was just back. It didn't happen in a flash the night that I helped this guy. I realized it because I started talking to him. I had my dad back. My sons began to have a relationship with him. They had never had a relationship with him. I couldn't talk about him. Um, several months ago, one of the men I sponsored, he and his wife had a baby, and the baby got very sick very quickly. And she started dying. She was going to be dead in 12 hours. And I got to the hospital, and they looked in the window, and I was with the baby, and I'm surrounded by heart machines, and I'm a free man. The machines don't bug me. The hospitals don't bug me. You guys put me back into the firing line of life only because I did that work, and my dad came back to me. And this baby, and she's perfect now. She got on a heart She got on an artificial lung machine. And I just want to tell you, because this is the member, I, I'm... I, I'm a member of the, the biggest gang I've never been a member of, you know. Uh, our pants aren't quite as baggy, uh, but uh, uh, it's an incredible group of winners. The, the call in L.A. went out for blood for this baby in Alcoholics Anonymous. Two weeks after the baby was home from the hospital, the hospital called these parents and said, they won't stop coming. They just keep coming. They just keep coming and giving blood, you know. Um, and in the AA family I'm part of, you can't get intensive care, you know, if you're not a member of the family. So all these guys, the nurses, a six foot six Ethiopian guy, he's an uncle. The Japanese woman is an aunt. I mean, father, the nurses just went, go ahead, who cares? Because it's just this, this who was claiming to be this kid's aunts and uncles. It was hysterically funny. <laughs> um, uh, about a year and a half ago, our older son, Micah, uh, who had such a remarkable recovery from the disease of alcoholism, began his descent into al active alcoholism. And uh, he had a bad acid trip and got thrown out of school for dealing drugs. And, man, it happened really fast, you know, really, really fast. And, uh, I, uh, you know, my first impulse was, what kind of program do I work if my kid's sick? You know, I, in order to do that, I had to forget just everything you had ever taught me. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I had to get step. I had to forget step one. I'm powerless over alcohol. Everybody's. I have to get forget everything you've taught me. I can't get him sober. I can't get him drunk. I can't get myself sober. I can't get myself drunk. I can't do it. I am powerless. I am not God. I am powerless. And I had to forget all the guys who have gotten at the podiums countless times at countless meetings and talked to me about living with active alcoholism, about their children. And sharing their experience, strength, and hope with me. I got into self, and I was hurting. You know, 
And my and my moment came when Nancy came home from an Al-Anon meeting. I said, how was your meeting? She said, oh, it was so great. I shared about Micah, and I got, you know, this wall of love. And I said, oh, did you have to share about it on a public level? You know? <laughs> and my wife looks at me and goes, hello? You know, what do you think my club is about? How to live with active alcoholism and have a good life. That's one of the things it's about. And Nancy, one more time, carried the message home to me, you know. And uh, and I started doing the work I had to do in AA. And, uh